0: The scripture for today is Ephesians 2:11 to22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him and you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Sandy, Uh, Let's pray as we uh, think about the passage today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that you're a God who speaks, that you have uh, created us, not only in this world, but gathered us as a people to worship you, to know you, to love you, to hear from you. And We pray, Lord, that we would come expectantly uh, this morning, that uh, for all of us, no matter uh, what point in our journey of faith we are today, that Uh, This would be a significant time, a learning time, a time where we are uh, encouraged by you through your spirit. So be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Scott McKnight, in his book, A Fellowship of Difference, that's E-N-T-S, from which I got today's sermon title, argues that there are three ways to eat a salad. There's the American way, the weird way, and the right way. The American way of eating a salad is to fill your bowl with some iceberg lettuce or some spinach leaves then some tomato slices. You say tomato, I say tomato. And olives and maybe some carrots and then smother it with uh, salad dressing, ranch or Thousand Island or Italian or he says for special occasions Caesar. The weird way he says is to separate each item in your salad on the plate and then eat them as separate items Uh, People who do this often do not even use dressing. That's why he calls it weird. But then the right way, McKnight suggests, is to make and eat a salad. Uh, To make and eat a salad is to gather all your ingredients, some spinach, some kale, some chard, arugula, iceberg lettuce if you must. Chop them into smaller bits, then cut up some tomatoes, carrots, onions, red pepper, purple cabbage, Add some nuts and dried berries, sprinkle some pecorino romano cheese, and finally drizzle over the salad some good olive oil, which somehow brings out the taste of each item to its fullest. That, says McKnight, is what God intended when he created a mixed salad. (laughs) Now, you may disagree with McKnight, but he makes this distinction because he says, if we want to be the church that God designed us to be, we have to learn to see the church somewhat like a salad in a bowl but made the right way. The Bible doesn't portray the people of God as a people where all the differences have been smothered together, uh, so everything is the same. Nor does it present the people, the church as a people where groups worship and exist separately according to their different likes and their preferences. Rather from the New Testament writer's point of view, the church is a fellowship of different tastes all mixed together with the olive oil accentuating the taste of each and that is to say the the earliest christian churches were made up of folks from all over the social map but they formed a fellowship of difference a mixed salad of the best kind now as far as i can tell the apostle paul doesn't try any salad analogies in his letters but in ephesians 2 and 3 He makes a similar big point to the one that Scott McKnight is is making in his book. But Paul not only highlights God's design of the church as a fellowship of difference, but also God's reason for designing the church this way. And the reason is huge. This today really is uh, this morning's sermon in a sentence. It's this, that the church as a fellowship of difference is the grand witness to the truth of the gospel. Church is God's world-changing demonstration of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another, whereby we show the world what love and justice and reconciliation and life together are designed to be. We're intended to be God's show and tell to the world to show how God wants us to live as, as a family. And we're going to see how Paul develops this idea by looking at three things in Ephesians uh, 2 today. That God's plan for the local church number 1 begins with the gospel. Secondly, it's a gospel that by by design creates diversity. And then thirdly, it's a diversity that we must not hinder. Church is a fellowship of difference is the grand witness to the truth of the gospel. So first, God's plan for the local church begins with the gospel. Prior to the passage that Sandy read for us a few moments ago, Paul lays out the essence of the gospel in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. At the beginning of that passage, verses 1 to 3, he articulates how the human predicament is extremely bleak unless and until God intervenes. Previously, he says, before anyone becomes a Christian, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're enslaved to the world, to our sinful human nature and the devil, and therefore we're under condemnation. However, Ephesians 2.4 announces the wonderful good news of the gospel introduced with these powerful two words, but God. God intervenes, and through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, God has raised us from death to life and reversed the curse of spiritual alienation. We've been saved, we've been rescued, not because of anything in us, not because of anything that we have done, but sheerly by God's grace. So Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8-9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So in Christ we're no longer alienated from God, but marvelously, gloriously reconciled to him. On Wednesday, Marilyn Button was kind enough to invite me to teach a couple of her world literature classes at Lincoln University as they considered the importance of the Bible as literature. And in particular, in the class, uh, I was there for the, the opening book of, the, of, of Genesis in the Bible. And as we thought about the significance at the beginning of the Bible of Genesis 3 in the fall and, of Adam and Eve, I pointed out to the students that, that the text argues that that spiritual alienation between God and humans caused by Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion led to other forms of alienation in this world. Alienation that we continue to experience today. So, So that fracture in our relationship with God has led to a fracture with our physical world, which is why we see poverty and famine and hunger and disease and death. It's led to a psychological fracture within ourselves, which is why we suffer from anger and bitterness and depression and anxiety. But thirdly, the spiritual fracture has led to a social fracture, whereby we we don't get on with one another. We have wars and crime and sexism and racism and relationship breakdowns. So here's the question. If our spiritual alienation from God was the root cause of this physical alienation and this psychological alienation and this social alienation, but our spiritual alienation has been undone by Christ and his work on the cross, does that mean that the other alienations have been undone as well? And Paul here isn't going to look at all the different forms of alienation, but he does address it with regard to this social alienation, this social fracturing. And his answer is yes, our vertical reconciliation with God leads to a horizontal reconciliation with one another in the church. And as we're about to see, with regard to the church, that means, and this is our second point, the gospel by design creates diversity. Verses 11 to 13, Paul narrows his focus from the earlier verses on everyone to now the recipients of this letter who were predominantly Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, and he articulates Uh, Three things about them. First of all, what they once were. Secondly, what Christ has done for them. Thirdly, what they have consequently become. Look at those verses with me. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Before God had intervened on behalf of the Gentiles, they had been separated from Christ. God's focus in the Old Testament and even in the earthly ministry of Jesus had been overwhelmingly with the Jews. Consequently, the Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel and the foreigner and foreigners to the covenants of promise given to Abraham. And that meant that Paul states that they were without hope in the sense of ultimate hope, hope of salvation. But now, verse 13, everything has changed. Why? Because he says, In Christ Jesus you Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ, the cross of Christ has changed everything. They've been brought near not only to God, undoing the vertical spiritual alienation, but they've also been brought near horizontally to their new brothers and sisters in Christ, namely those Jews who had put their trust in Jesus. And Paul then fleshes out this horizontal reconciliation in the next section, verses 14 to 18. For he himself, that is, he, Jesus himself, is our peace, Paul's making a massively important point here, that the end goal of the gospel isn't just our individual salvation, but it leads to some other very significant implications. And implication number one, as mentioned here, is the church's unity in diversity. Here were two groups of people who were not just different. They lived in hostility to each other. The Jews and the Gentiles shared nothing in common except for a centuries-old loathing for one another. Their different histories and ethnicities and religions and cultures created this wall between the two groups, a wall that signified a separation of open hostility, and yet, and yet Paul says there is now a unity between these two groups, not a pretend unity, not a make-believe unity, a real unity, because the gospel has created that unity, that by the, by the cross, Jesus has put to death their hostility with each other, that as Christ uttered his last breath on the cross and the curtain separating humans from God was torn from top to bottom, God was also destroying the barrier, dividing Jew and from Gentile. Now, all of that's noteworthy enough, but Paul wants us to know that this reconciliation and new unity isn't just for unity's sake. And here's where we get to the climax of his argument on this. Listen to what Paul says in the next section of the letter, after the part that Sandy read for us, because here's the ultimate purpose of this unity and diversity in the church. Chapter 3, 8 to 10, to me, though I was the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that, listen, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? He says that the church is the grand witness to the truth of the gospel. The church is set up to be the number one apologetic, the number one piece of evidence for the claims of the Bible. That far from just being nice to have, this unity and diversity in this fellowship of difference should be the one obviously supernatural characteristic of a local church. And by supernatural, I don't just mean here mystical, vaguely spiritual sense in the way that our culture might use the term. I mean the very biblical idea of a loving, sovereign God working in space and time to do that which confounds the natural laws and ways of the world around us. That's what God has set up the church to do, that we're to be a community that reveals the power of the gospel because you can't physically see the gospel, right? The gospel, by definition, is something that has content, it's truth, it's information, it's good news, but when we encourage and foster community that is obviously supernatural in its, in its characteristics, it makes the gospel visible, Paul's saying. You think about a child rubbing a balloon on, on her, against her shirt to charge it with static electricity, and when she holds it over the hair on her head, she has hair, I don't. What happens? The, the hair reaches for the balloon, right? You can't see the static electricity, but its effect, the unnatural reaction of, of the hair can't be missed. And the same is designed, is designed by God to be true in his church by our unity and diversity as our community reveals the truth of the gospel to the world. I've been reading quite a few books on the church in preparation for this sermon series, and one that was uh, particularly helpful with regard to this passage in Ephesians 2 was uh, one called The Compelling Community by Mark Dever, Jamie Dunlop, who are pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, DC. And they note that here in Ephesians 2, Paul highlights that that a gospel-revealing community is notable along two dimensions. Firstly, the community is notable for its breadth, that it stretches to include peoples as divergent as Jew and Gentile. And one way in which a fellowship of difference glorifies God, therefore, is by reaching people who, apart from God's supernatural power, would never unite together. But God's supernatural power at work through the gospel does bring difference together, because as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.18, through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It doesn't matter who you are. Through Jesus, we, we all have access, so we're all brought together, no matter the breadth of our experience. But secondly, this community is, he says, notable for its depth. It doesn't just bring people together to tolerate each other, It brings people together so tightly committed that Paul can call them here, according to, as the NIV translates it, a new humanity, verse 15, and a new household, verse 19. So that Paul reaches for the world's natural deepest bonds, the bonds of ethnicity and family, to describe this new community in the local church. Supernatural depth and breadth of community makes the manifold wisdom of God known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It makes the the, the rulers of the heavenly places look at the church, and it makes them sit up when they see what God has brought together in the church, and it makes the gospel visible to the watching world around us. Now, another word, of course, for this dimension of breadth that the church is designed to demonstrate is is a word I've already used, and that's the word diversity, and it's a bit of a buzzword these days, and even in the church, there's been a particular emphasis on on ethnic diversity or the lack thereof in the church at large, but I think it's important for us to recognize that the diversity that Paul is highlighting here could be defined as any multiplicity of backgrounds where unity is possible only through the gospel. Any multiplicity of backgrounds where unity is only going to happen because of what the gospel is doing in our lives. And if that's the definition we use, then then there are many types of differences that fit the basic pattern in Ephesians 2 and 3 in a fellowship of difference. This is certainly not an exhaustive list, but consider for a moment these boundaries that are very evident in society and that we as the church are called to overcome. Number one, boundaries of age. Church is, is to be a multi-generational community, not just geared for boomers, or Gen Xers, or Gen Y, or Gen Z, or I think we're up to Gen A now. We're, we're to see all, all ages together. Secondly, boundaries of economics. Our world is very familiar with rich people acting benevolently towards poor people, doing kind and generous things for them, and, and that's good. But then those rich people retreat to the comfort of other rich people. And that's not to be the attitude in the church. In his uh, New Testament letter, James tells the church off for her preferential treatment of the rich, telling them, James 2 verse 9, that if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Boundaries of politics. One of the saddest moments for me this past year was when one person who had been attending regularly pre-COVID told me that they would not be coming back to this church on Sundays because they could not abide the thought of sitting in church alongside people who might have voted for the other candidate in last year's presidential election. Church should never shy away from speaking strongly on moral matters that the Bible addresses and we try to, to do that, to, to speak to those things. However, that moral authority does not often translate cleanly into the details of public policy. And as a result, Christians with divergent views on government policy still need to find unity in the more ultimate reality of God's kingdom. That's what we were thinking about last week. And then boundaries of physical and social ability, we need to ask ourselves constantly if everyone, if everyone finds our church accessible and welcoming, or do they find it as cold and impersonal, excuse me, as the world outside can be. Now, all that said, I do want to come back to the boundaries of ethnicity that I alluded to at the start of this list, because I think we have to. Some of you know Jeremy and I were uh, in the great city of Boston this uh, last couple of days. Our wives came with us too. Uh, We were up there for the Presbytery meeting. The end of the meeting yesterday, I gave a report to Presbytery on behalf of the Revelation 7-9 Task Force, which I uh, co-chair. And that report included offering copies of the Task Force uh, written report that we distributed at our General Assembly meeting uh, this past June. Saved some copies for you all. Uh, They're on the back table. If you're interested, you can pick one of those up after the service. But in the report, I do commend it to you. There's a short question and answer section, and here's one of the questions in that section. It says, is the Revelation 7-9 task force all about racial and ethnic diversity? Aren't other kinds of diversity important? And the answer in the report is this. No, it is not all about racial, ethnic diversity. Other types of diversity are also important. Revelation 7-9 also recognizes the need for age and economic diversity in our churches. However, we must not pretend that the church has not been leading from behind on the divisive issue of race and ethnicity. Nor should we deny that we have allowed secular culture to fill the vacuum and control the racial narrative. So Revelation 7-9 path seeks to emulate the early Jewish Christians who leaned into the tension of Gentile inclusion by providing the gospel solution of radical love, righteousness, biblical justice, and mercy, quote. Now one thing we're conscious of on this task force is that the context in which each church in our denomination serves is different. The characteristic of a fellowship of difference in Argyle, in rural upstate New York, where my friend Brian Fitzgerald is the minister, is going to look very different than the characteristics of a fellowship of difference here in Kennett Square. And probably the primary reason for that is is the difference in ethnic diversity. Argyle is predominantly a farming community, it's predominantly a white community, not so here in Kennett Square. Listen to this statement that was in the document put together as part of the recent search for a new borough manager here in Kennett Square. The borough of Kennett Square is a very diverse community with major ethnicity populations comprised of roughly 45% Hispanic or Latin ancestry, 48% white, 6% black or African American, with a balance consisting of Asian, Native American, Indian, or two or more races. So think about this. If in God's providence He has placed us as His church in a town with such rich ethnic diversity, that should make a difference to who we are and what we look like. We just said, I just said a few moments ago that the breadth and depth of the community in the church is God's grand witness to the truth of the gospel to the world around us. So here's the question that the task force is asking every EPC church to ask themselves, how well does your congregation reflect the diversity of population that lives in a one, three, five mile radius from your church? And certainly when it comes to ethnic diversity, I don't think you need me to answer that question for us. You just have to look around the room this morning. But that question isn't intended to create guilt. It's intended as a gospel motivator for the future. It's intended to to help a congregation like us see that by the context of the diversity on various fronts in which God has placed us, he's given us an undeserved opportunity to wonderfully reveal the power of the gospel to those around us. The gospel that by God's design creates unity and diversity. And that brings us to our third and final point. God's plan for the local church begins with the gospel, a gospel that by design creates diversity. Thirdly, though, a diversity that we must not hinder. So we've seen Paul wants us to understand that this diversity grows organically from the gospel. It's a logical and natural outworking of Jesus's work of reconciliation on the cross. And that means that diversity is likely more important, but at the same time, less important than you've probably considered it in the past. It's more important because, as I've already stated, a fellowship of difference is the grand design God has put in place to the truth of the gospel for the world around us. That's going to be the case until Jesus returns. But at the same time, diversity may be less important than you thought because it's not an end in itself. Diversity is the effect, it's not the substance, it's the the thermometer in a church, not the thermostat, in that it informs us, gives us a sense of the spiritual temperature of the congregation, but it has little ability in itself to increase spiritual maturity. Diversity in a local church therefore matters in a sense, little in and of itself, but it matters enormously to the extent that it does what God intends it to do, which is to put on public display the power of the gospel. We should care deeply about being a fellowship of difference because it's God's primary means today to reveal the power of the gospel. So here's the question. What are we supposed then to do to create unity in diversity in our church? And here's the answer nothing. We don't create unity in diversity in the church because Paul says God's already done it. That's what he's done through the cross. All through our passage, the verbs are all descriptive of what has already happened and what God has done. So we were separated and alienated, having no hope, but God in his mercy, God in his mercy, brought us near through Jesus, who is our peace, and God who has made us one, and God who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. It's all God. He's done it. The challenge for us, however... is is that when we misunderstand God's purpose through diversity in the local church, we get in its way and we actually work against it. And one primary way that we do that, perhaps unawares, is that we constantly just seek to build community based on similarity rather than the gospel. Now, frankly, anyone can build community based on similarity. In fact, everyone does build community based on similarity, but we're never gonna demonstrate fully the power of the gospel if that's how we seek to build community here. What do I mean by building community based on similarity rather than gospel? Here's an example. Let's say a 45-year-old guy starts coming to PCKS. Who, who are, who's he most naturally gonna build friendships with and who's gonna understand it best? Well, other middle-aged guys too. So let's say I invite him to Theology on Tap, our men's group for 40 to 60-year-olds, and sure enough, he quickly integrates into that group and and thrives. And you might say, you know, mission accomplished, right? But not quite. Because what what happened there is what Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop in their book called a demographic phenomenon, not necessarily a gospel phenomenon. Middle-aged guys will tend to gravitate towards each other in a church or elsewhere, and, and have a good time, regardless of whether the gospel is true or not. If you took a bunch of those guys and stuck them in a room tomorrow night to watch the Eagles-Cowboys game, they'll have a great time, at least if the Eagles win, I guess. They'll form good community, but, but you'll see the same thing happen whether or not those guys are Christians. So that, that kind of community, is, it's wonderful, it's good, but its existence actually says very little about the power of the gospel. And the reality is that most of the tools that churches use to build community actually center on something other than the gospel, age-based groupings, gender-based groupings, marital status-based groupings. We do it, other churches do it. Ministry by similarity is a very common tool in churches for fostering community in churches. But, and don't get me wrong, I think that cultivating relationships with people who share similarities is a helpful thing in churches. It's just I don't think Paul is saying here it should be the dominant way that people connect with each other in church. Ministry by similarity can so characterize our community as churches that it obscures the supernatural diversity that the gospel organically produces. And so the key therefore, I think, is what characterizes community in our church. Mark uh, Merker, Matt Merker, who wrote the music for that hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast, that we sometimes sing here, illustrated this point through the picture of, of the balanced food plate, or it used to be the food pyramid, I think, but the food plate used by the US Department of Agriculture. The balanced food plate reminds us that it's unhealthy just to eat burgers and fries and pizza all the time, that the plate has to have a section for fruits and vegetables, for grains and for proteins. And in a similar way, Merker says, that we should cultivate a balanced plate of relationships in the church, that there are relationships of similarity in the church for which we should be grateful. But if those relationships and groupings characterize community at PCKS, then we're going to fail to be remarkable to the world around us. So that here's the key. There should be relationships that each of us are in where that relationship would never exist except for the truth and the power of the gospel. Relationships with other Christians where, where we don't have all these similarities, but we love one another and encourage one another and spend one another time with one another because of the gospel. And that's not natural. That's supernatural. But that's when the world sits up and takes notice. That's when Paul says the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places sit up and take notice and say, look at what God is doing through the power of the gospel in that community of people. Because that kind of unity and diversity is the grand witness to the truth of the gospel. I suspect I don't have to tell any of us here that we've got some room for improvement here. And again, this isn't for the sake of diversity in and of itself. It's because it's actually God's primary means to reveal the power of the gospel to the world. Is this straightforward and easy? Of course it's not. Like all people, you and I like to be around people who are like ourselves. We feel comfortable in familiar, predictable patterns. And in many ways, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just it's not the Jesus way. It's not the Paul way, which is why we need to discover or rediscover the church as that mixed salad of the best kind, that fellowship of difference, because Paul says that's what makes people sit up and marvel at what God has done and what God is doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are challenging things because they call on us to think differently, act differently, to live out the gospel in ways perhaps we haven't been fully doing, either individually or corporately. But Lord, we we long to live out the reality of the gospel, not only in our individual lives, but as a body, that we would be a fellowship of difference to the glory of God, A fellowship of difference so that the world would look at us and say, you know, that is something different to anything else I see in my life, in this world, in this community. But we need your help. We need your spirit. So help us, we pray, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.